The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But one of them is what researchers call the fire hose of falsehood. And that's where you put out so many lies and half-truths and conspiracy theories so fast through so many channels that people become confused, disoriented, cynical fact-checkers the media can't begin to keep up with. Just trying to refute them gives them more currency. And meanwhile, you've got 10 others out there. The goal of this isn't necessarily to persuade people of something that's false, though you like it when that happens, but it's to persuade them that nothing is true that there's no one, no one they can trust anymore. They become cynical about, about the media and about what's true and what's false. They become, in fact, unable even to tell what's true and false if this goes on long enough. So no one ever imagined adapting and using techniques, Russian-style disinformation techniques like the fire hose of falsehood. And there are others like conspiracy bootstrapping and trolling and so forth. No one imagined applying those at mass scale to American politics, much less as a candidate for the presidency or as president of the United States. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 14th, 2021. Public discourse is in bad shape these days. We all yell at and cancel each other on social media and college campuses, and politicians, especially those on the Trumpist right, lie so much that the very notion of truth threatens to lose any meaning. But Jonathan Rausch is optimistic that this can change for the better. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of, most recently, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. I spoke with Jonathan about his book, his diagnosis of our present condition, and his hopes for the future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 14th. Jonathan Rausch on The Constitution of Knowledge. So, Jonathan, you frame the book around two concepts, the constitution of, of knowledge, which is, of course, the title of the book. And the other concept is what you call the reality-based community. So what are these concepts and why are they important? How do they fit into the main argument of the book? Well, first of all, it's, it's really nice to be here, Alan. Thank you for featuring me in the book. Every society, small or large, you know, a small, a small traditional tribe, a great nation, even in some ways an entire world needs an epistemic regime, which just means a way to come to some kind of social agreement about what's true and what's false. And that's a really hard question. And the traditional way of doing it is that people would join sects or follow leaders or, or tribes or groups, and they would have certain doctrines which they would agree to, or holy books, or they would consult oracles or priests where dictators would tell them what to think, and then they would split into sects, and they would, if they had disagreements, go to war and, and kill each other or exile each other or just live in a state of mutual ignorance and hostility. And that's the first 200,000 or so years of human history, with a few exceptions. So it turns out there's a whole other way for a society to stay more to truth and come to some kind of agreement about what's true and, and what's not true. And that's the Constitution of Knowledge, which was basically invented about 400 years ago, give or take. And that's the, the whole system of all the institutions and rules that we have that basically force us, if we want to make knowledge, we have to go consult other people. We have to put a hypothesis out there and let other people criticize it. We have to publish an article in a magazine. And if it's wrong, other people will catch it. And these other people have to be, they can be complete strangers anywhere in the world. 
They can't be a member of just any particular tribe. So like the U.S. Constitution, which is basically a mechanism to force compromise if you want to get anything done, the Constitution of Knowledge is a mechanism to force persuasion if you want to make knowledge. I'm going to have to persuade you that I'm right about something before you're going to publish it in your law review. And that turns out to be an incredible process because it produces more knowledge literally every day than we produced in the first 200,000 years. But the big concept here is it's not just an unstructured marketplace of ideas where people talk. That doesn't work. People go down rabbit holes, you know, they form tribes, groups, confirmation bias, all that. You need a lot of structures and a lot of checks and balances and a lot of institutions and incentives to get this right. And that's what this book is detailing and defending. So what about the reality-based community? You know, after all, I think most people like to think that they are part of the reality-based community. And, and to say that there is such a reality-based community as, as you do, and that it's, it's actually hard to be a member of it implies that there are lots of people that are in some sort of some make-believe land. So what, what do you mean by the reality-based community? And, and what do you think takes, uh, it takes to become a member of it? The reality-based community is the people and institutions, and mostly professionals, virtually all are full-time professionals, who are in the business of floating and checking and testing ideas and hypotheses and training other people on how to do that. And the big four, there are a lot of a lot of different parts of it, but the big four are, of course, science, academia, research, number one. Number two is fact-based journalism, mainstream media. Number three is government, which has to be very fact-based, and that's everything from the Weather Service to the CIA. And the fourth, which people don't really think about in this context, but which is just absolutely crucial, is the law which is a fact-finding mechanism. In fact, historians say that the concept of a fact originates not in science, but, but before that, from law. Because in order to go to court, you had to establish that some things were true, and then you needed courts to do that, and you needed juries to do that. That's why when Donald Trump starts putting out disinformation about the election, he gets nowhere in court because it's fact-based. So those four are the big four. So let's go back to the constitution of, of knowledge. And, and you spend a good amount of time in your book on this extended metaphor between the U.S. constitution on the one hand and the constitution of knowledge on the other hand. So why this analogy in particular? You just talked about why you think the marketplace of ideas analogy doesn't quite work. Why is it so important for your argument that the rules for how we in our society, we in the reality-based community come to a decision is a constitution rather than some sort of other social arrangement? Because it's such a good way to get across the idea that you need rules and institutions and that defending our system for making knowledge is very much like defending our constitution. It's not self-defending or self-sustaining. You need a lot of people to understand these rules. You need things like, for example, in the U.S. Constitution, you need voters and electorate who understand that they won't win every election, but the government is still legitimate in the constitution of knowledge. You need people who understand they may not win every argument, and they may disagree with some of what's considered knowledge, what's believed to be true in this system, but you just go on to the next argument that you don't win all the time. Uh, you need to be willing to cooperate with strangers in both systems. You need to be willing to persuade or to compromise. So it turns out these systems are very similar, except one is making law, basically, and doing politics, and the other is making knowledge and helping us agree. Let me push you on that a little more. And I don't want to take the metaphor too literally because it is, after all, a metaphor, but, but you spend a lot of time, and I think a really interesting part of your book, talking about it. So I, I do want to take it seriously. The thing I think I found most puzzling about the analogy is that um, there seem to be two very dissimilar features between the U.S. Constitution on the one hand and the social system that you're talking about on the other hand. And in particular, you know, the U.S. Constitution is written down in a way that the rules of the Constitution of Knowledge aren't. And the U.S. Constitution has, at least in the vast majority of cases, an authoritative interpreter in the form of the Supreme Court, whereas the Constitution of Knowledge is decentralized, as far as I can tell, in what counts as a, a good argument. And, and so, you know, to the extent that we need something like a constitution 
to make the system work if the constitution that we have of knowledge lacks these two features that seem really important to making the US constitution work? I mean, are we are we therefore kind of fighting a doomed game because we don't have that writtenness and agreement? We don't have that centralized decision making and enforcement. No, we're definitely not playing a, a doomed game. But since I'm talking to a law professor, I, I can't resist making the point. You'll notice the tension between your your second point and your first. Your first is that the U.S. Constitution is written down. But of course, most of it is not written down. Most of it emerges later in the development of institutions and norms. And one of those is that the Supreme Court is the supreme interpreter. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives it that power. It gave itself that power and society decided it worked out. And if the Supreme Court abuses that power, it will it will erode. But yeah, the one big difference is that the Constitution of Knowledge is not written down in any one document in any one place. But I argue actually that Alan, this is this is more than just a metaphor, a literary device. These systems actually, at a social level, at a mechanical level, they're actually doing similar things. They're using these these incentives to force compromise and persuasion to allow social cooperation on a very big scale and to make it much more difficult for any one person or faction to take over the system permanently. They're spreading power out, so they're very decentralized. They've got checks and balances. The way science works, it pits bias against bias. Everything you write is going to be criticized by people who see things very differently. So I think it's actually much more than just a, a literary device and we, in fact, should think about our knowledge-making system as, although not a written constitution, maybe in that sense more like the British constitution, but a very elaborate system of kind of social settings that we need to get right in order to have a sane and civil society. So say more about the competitive nature of this constitution. And, and you know, in, in your book, you spend a lot of time kind of unpacking the Madisonian assumptions in the U.S. Constitution, the idea that ambition must check ambition for a system to work and and the whole assumption that, you know, we don't have to um, all be super civic minded and pro-social in order to have a stable country. We just have to to have a system in which we check ourselves. Uh, You know, I I think a lot of people have this idealized conception that knowledge comes through very polite discussion between highly learned individuals. And in fact, there's a lot more, you know, hurly burly than, than that. And I was sort of like you to talk more about how how that manifests itself in the constitution of knowledge. The genius of the constitution of knowledge is that we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. And that's a revolution in human affairs because before that, you know, if somebody had an idea that you didn't like, uh, you would kill or ostracize or imprison that person in many cases. And the fact that we kill our hypotheses instead of each other allows us to err, to make errors many times a day and not pay with our lives. And the, the genius of, of the constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community, isn't that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes them so quickly and checks them so quickly. And, and that's a genius invention. But what you just said is exactly true. People don't like making mistakes and they don't think they have made mistakes typically. And they certainly don't like to be corrected. So the notion that scientists or journalists or anyone else kind of walks in and says, well, I'm not really sure I have a, I I guess maybe I have some kind of point of view. Well, that's no more true than in politics and Republicans and Democrats, you know, members of Congress really don't have convictions. The system, political system, Madison's genius is to assume that people do have very strong points of view, that they don't want to compromise and force them to compromise anyway. And that turns out to be a fantastic dynamic engine for creativity. You want people to have and defend strong points of view. The same is true in science. But the history of science completely belies the idea that this is an antiseptic exercise. And, you know, people in white lab coats talk politely all the time. The history of science is is full of feuds and personal vendettas and attacks. And as as the great sociologist of science, David Hull, once wrote, there is no stronger motivation in the sciences than the desire to get that son of a bitch. And the trick is to harness that. And that's what the constitution of knowledge does. It turns the heat of disagreement into the light of knowledge. Yeah, I, I want to underscore that because I, I think, you know, as I was reading your book, I, I think I misinterpreted it for 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 some of the time I was reading it as a, a argument for the sort of 
very high level, very kind of erudite, dispassionate analysis. But in fact, what I think what it seems you're arguing is, is that the genius of the constitution of knowledge is that you can take a bunch of people who have incredibly strong views, who disagree intensely, and you manage to turn that into a productive, propulsive furthering of human knowledge rather than disinformation, rather than, you know, the, the, the corrosive qualities of social media or of cancel culture. Yeah. So I, I want to turn to that now. You know, th- there are these three dangers to the constitution of knowledge that you identify. There's the, the distortion caused by social media in particular and, and some other kinds of digital communication. That's one. The second is the, the kind of post-truth politics of Donald Trump and, and other especially far-right political figures. And then the third is cancel culture. And in particular, though not exclusively, certainly in left-dominated spaces like universities and, and certain professions. So I want to kind of spend at least a few minutes on, on each of these. So with respect to social media, what is the nature of the problem? Because of course, you know, if you think, as I think people traditionally do, that the best metaphor is the marketplace of ideas, then social media seems like it would be the kind of apotheosis of that. And yet, I think we can all see that we're not particularly well served by Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies. And and so why is that? Well, one problem with the constitution of knowledge is that it worked so well for so long that we got lazy and complacent. And we thought, well, all you need is free speech and the marketplace of ideas without any structure, without any rules, without any norms or incentives. And people will just talk and the best ideas will surface and good ideas will win out over bad ideas. And if you ask most Americans right now where knowledge comes from, that's what they'd probably say, the marketplace of ideas. Well, that turns out to be wrong. It turns out that people who knew a lot about network sociology knew that it would be wrong because left to their own devices, people in these large group settings tend not to communicate. They tend to do something else very different that social psychologists call display. They want to prove to their group that they're loyal members. They want to improve their status within the group. They want to show how virtuous they are. And so they'll use these conversations to virtue signal. And they'll also use them to troll because it turns out what you want to do is get attention. And a good way to do that is to insult the other side. I mean, you know, think of Think of some human tribe standing on the hill, shaking its spears and yelling imprecations at the tribe on the next hill. That's, that's kind of what we tend to do in those situations. Well, the constitution of knowledge protects us from ourselves, as the U.S. Constitution does, by creating a lot of rules of things you can and cannot do. Forgive this Saturday Night Live reference. But, you know, if I write an article for the Minnesota Law Review, I can't really begin it, Alan, you ignorant slut. That's just not going to work. Even if I want to do that, you're going to force me to take a different approach in order to get heard, in order to win prestige. Internet comes along and it blows all that away. It has this notion, well, you just have a free open space. You have what's called a platform, totally unstructured knowledge will just arise from that. Turns out the social incentives are very different. We should have known that. We could have known that, but, but we missed it. So let, let's get concrete, right? If if Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. right, or Jack Dorsey came to you and wanted your advice for how to fix Facebook or Twitter and you know, how to get them on the side of the constitution of knowledge and not demolishing it, you know, what what concretely would would you tell them? Well, there's so much here and there's so much that has to be learned about it because, you know, we have the, the problem with the original sin of the internet. The original architecture is designed to monetize attention not to monetize truth, which is a totally different incentive structure than, you know, a university professor or a mainstream journalist, you know, where if you don't tell the truth, you get fired. So the system, social media as we know it and digital media could not be worse designed from an epistemic point of view because it rewards attention, it rewards instanticity, it rewards trolling, it rewards display. A lot of changes are being looked at. A lot of them are going to be trial and error, but I'll give you a few examples. Right now, something that, that Twitter is doing, if I want to retweet a link without reading it first, before I retweet that, a pop-up will say, are you sure you want to send this out without reading it first? This is one small way of trying to change the incentives. A much bigger way, which I'm in favor of, is from an epistemic point of view, the idea that Alan Rosenstein pops off a tweet 
hits the send button and it's immediately published globally instantaneously, it's just insane. How often in life do we regret our very first impulse, wish we'd thought about it a little more? So there should be a time delay. And that's technologically trivial to implement. You know, just, just wait an hour or maybe have to read your tweet back in an hour with, are you sure you want to say this? Or maybe route your tweet to three friends, your personal social editing committee who could say, hey, Alan, are you sure you want to destroy your career? There's all kinds of innovations that are being looked at. I think you know, there's also the argument over policy like Section 230 and rules of content moderation and rules of service. And that's going to be important too. But I actually think the greater promise is going to lie in, in trial and error to figure out how to change the products themselves so they're more truth-friendly. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Do, do you worry, though, that when you have large corporations publicly traded that are in charge of these platforms, there's a limit to how much technology can, can fix this problem? And, and that really, yeah, if you're relying on these technological solutions rather than, let's say, something more drastic like I don't know, antitrust and breaking up these companies so that they're just in no single company has as much control over the kind of public sphere that, that really all you're doing is in a sense actually further entrenching their power by not only saying, you know, you have control of our eyeballs and our attention, and also we're going to expect you to do quite invasive content moderation. And, and you know, the, the, the reason I, I'm concerned about this is, is it, it seems difficult to expect these companies to, to necessarily do a, a, always a good job here. I mean, mo you know, most recently I'm thinking, there's the, the ProPublica story about, you know, the various uh, tax um, information about various billionaires and that information may have been hacked. Links to that story are flying around the Internet in social media companies without any problem, whereas when there was admittedly probably quite dubious reporting about some laptop that may or may not have been owned by Hunter Biden, you know, Twitter went and banned the continued circulation of that. And I think this has given rise I think fairly in many cases to concerns that even if these companies are, are trying to, to do the right thing and be neutral, which I think they are, there's just no way that centralizing so much power in a few small companies like this is going to, to end well. So, I mean, if we're really serious about protecting the constitution of knowledge from social media, can we really have social media in anything like the form we've been used to in the last decade? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. And the answer might be no, as, as I said. The problems, the epistemic problems with these media are wired in very deeply, you know, in the fundamental model, which is that they make money by getting attention and that creates some, some pretty bad incentives. There's a couple of different problems that are kind of, I think, mashed together in the proposition or question you stated, Alan. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. But one is the question of what kind of content moderation policies and platform design might or might not work. What are the advantages and disadvantages? And, and that, I think, we learn by doing. But the other is, what about the fact that a couple of these companies, really Facebook, but also YouTube, Google, and maybe Twitter, have such large market power? And that's a, that's an analytically separate question, because if there were 20 small Facebooks and they all had different content moderation policies and conservatives preferred one and liberals preferred another, like you know when there were lots of newspapers and some of them were right-wing and some were left-wing, we wouldn't be as concerned about it. So the market power issue is a lot of what we're talking about here. And that's a separate issue. And I don't really address that in my book and I don't really have strong priors on it. But I, I would say that I'm not completely pessimistic on this. I agree with you that we don't know the outcome, but I'm very heartened, for example, by 
interested in and heartened by Facebook's new oversight board. The way we've dealt with these, we collectively, society, has dealt with information disruptions in the past has been by building new institutions and norms that help people understand better ways, more socially productive ways to behave and that disincentivize bad behavior. Now that takes time. And social media came out of nowhere and demolished a lot of these norms and rules. But we have precedents. One of them is 19th century American journalism was a cesspool of extreme partisanship and fake news. And that went on for a long time, and it arguably caused the Spanish-American War, and it became toxic for customers and for newspapers. It's a bad environment for humans. And some people decided to do something about it. So the American Society of Newspaper Editors forms in the early 20th century. It promulgates ethics codes, things like run a correction if you're wrong. Journalism schools open, which begin training young journalists and inculcating these rules and practices. You begin to get journalism prizes like the Pulitzer, of course, but many others, the National Magazine Award, all kinds of prizes, which begin creating incentives for doing good, solid reporting. You build infrastructure in newsrooms so that you have the city editor, and then you have the copy desk. You have lots of layers of review, and it only takes, maybe this doesn't sound like only, but it only takes about 30 years to move from the world of yellow journalism to the world of Edward R. Murrow. So I think we can do that again. And I think Facebook's oversight board is an effort to start that process. We'll see how it works out. But I think if anything's going to work, it's going to be that kind of effort. But it will take a while and no guarantees. So let's turn now from social media to to politics. And and let's talk about Donald Trump and his kind of outsized influence on, on all of this. So you argue, um, I think very convincingly, that Trump is not a buffoon. I mean, he may be a buffoon, but in the most important ways um, in his effect on the informational ecosystem, he is actually an incredibly savvy and skilled kind of information or disinformation operative. And, and you know, why, why do you think that? Why do you think that after four years of the Trump presidency, you know, so many of us are still underestimating him and his effect on the, the public discourse? Well, here we need to introduce the key concept of the whole second part of my book, and that's concept of information warfare, or as I like to call it, epistemic warfare. What's that? It's the organization and manipulation of the social and media environments for political advantage with the goals of dividing, disorienting, and demoralizing people on the other side. These tactics are very well known. They date they date back a long time, but they date back especially to the early 20th century. Lenin used them. Goebbels was one of the all-time masters of these tactics, and the Russians have been using them successfully for many generations. And they include lots of measures, but one of them is what researchers call the firehose of falsehood. And that's where you put out so many lies and half-truths and conspiracy theories so fast through so many channels that people become confused, disoriented, cynical fact checkers the media can't begin to keep up with. Just trying to refute them gives them more currency. And meanwhile, you've got 10 others out there. The goal of this isn't necessarily to persuade people of something that's false, though you like it when that happens, but it's to persuade them that nothing is true, that there's no one, no one they can trust anymore. They become cynical about about the media and about what's true and what's false. They become, in fact, unable even to tell what's true and false if this goes on long enough. So no one ever imagined adapting and using techniques, Russian-style disinformation techniques like the firehose of falsehood. And there are others like conspiracy bootstrapping and trolling and so forth. No one imagined applying those at mass scale to American politics much less as a candidate for the presidency or as president of the United States. No one thought about using massive wholesale information warfare against the American public domestically. This is entirely new. So we had no immunity to this. The media had zero exposure to it. In 2016, in October, PolitiFact, which has been you know industriously checking Hillary Clinton's statements, And Donald Trump's statements find that a quarter of Hillary Clinton's are 
are mostly or entirely false, and that's too high. It's kind of what we expect from politicians. Yeah, it's too high. The equivalent figure for Donald Trump, mostly or entirely false, 70% of his checkable claims. Now think about that. 70% of what a candidate for president is saying is false. It's more what's coming out of his mouth is more likely to be false than true. His first acts as president are to lie brazenly about whether it rained during his inauguration and the size of the crowd. These are things that ordinary people can check. This is not an ordinary lie. This is his declaring sovereignty over truth and saying, I'm willing to, I don't really care what your eyes say. I can say anything. And he proceeds to do that, compiling a record, according to the Washington Post, 35,000 false claims over the course of his presidency. And note, a substantial acceleration in the rate of falsehoods beginning in April of 2020. Well, Alan, what's going on in April of 2020? Donald Trump is realizing that the polls show he's in a bad place. He may be about to lose the election. He launches an attack on mail-in voting. Huge attack, says it's a form of fraud. It's not. And people like me, think tanks like Brookings say, wait, Alan, what's going on here? I mean, lots of Republicans, older people, people worried about the pandemic. They're going to be voting by mail. Why is he doing this? It'll hurt him. Well, he's not focused on the election. He's focused on the post-election. He's organizing and testing his messaging and his network for the most extraordinary propaganda campaign ever unleashed in the U.S., and that's Stop the Steal. And you know what that looks like, and you know the results, which is 70% of Republicans now think the election was stolen. Entirely false. But there you are. We've never seen anything like this in America. We don't know how to cope with it. We have no immunity, and it's a very bad place to be. The only, the best defense against these tactics is for politicians not to use them to begin with. But unfortunately, we have crossed that Maginot line. How replicable, you know, speaking of the inspiration that that Trump has had for the the Trumpist part of the Republican Party, which is sort of increasingly the majority part of the Republican Party, how, how replicable do you think this approach is? I mean, if Trump runs again in 2024, which is not outside the realm of possibility, presumably we're going to get a bunch more of, of his style of information warfare. But what if Trump decides not to run? You know, do, do you think that the, the tools of Trumpist disinformation warfare are learnable by your average politician, or is there something special about Trump? I mean, you know, it, it, if, if a normal person stands up or an, let's say an ordinary person stands up and says, it's not raining when it's clearly raining, well, you think that person is just, is just delusional. But, but there was something about Trump where he could say that and, and the, the very fact of the obviousness of the lie almost redounded to his favor. I mean, is Trump unique in the kind of whatever weird combination of charisma and political genius um, such that we don't have to be quite so afraid of this? Or is every Republican who tries this and maybe one day, God forbid, you know, Democrats will start doing this too. Is this going to be something that you think is, is, could become a, a sort of stable feature of our politics? One can only conjecture. We don't know that yet. That's the $64,000 question. I'll tell you why I'm discouraged about this. When I wrote the book, it was before Stop the Steal, before the election. And one of the things I thought is, okay, well, uh, maybe the whole chapter on, on Trump and disinformation and what the Russians are up to and how Trump copied that and, and magnified it, maybe that's all going to be obsolete when the book is published because maybe he's out of power and Joe Biden is president and it's all gone away. Then Stop the Steal happens and we see that Trump is out of power and he loses his Twitter account. But the Republican Party, and specifically the Republican base, takes up these lies, this disinformation campaign, and run with it because it, and it becomes almost like a game for them. It's just lots of fun. You know, Republicans in Arizona, my home state, decide. Well, although the election returns were checked twice internally and then went through two outside audits, which found no problems, and were certified by the Republican state officials, including the governor who run the election process, we need to go back and have a new recount, a true recount conducted by Trumpy people with no experience in the election who will do things like check for bamboo fibers in case ballots were shipped in from China. So that may sound clownish, but it's not. That's the grassroots saying, ah, we can do some trolling, some conspiracy theorizing, some disinformation here. And sure enough, 
other Republicans around the country copycat that. And they start demanding these sham recounts of their own. So what we've learned is that, yeah, once this genie is out of the bottle, this is a fun way to do politics. Can You can just make stuff up. You can be outrageous. You can broadcast it through lots of channels. I don't know that others will be as good as Trump, but I do know that lots of countries and lots of political parties and politicians have used these tactics with great success for 100 years, and there's no reason why American politicians of both parties cannot also do the same, and they already are. So before we get to you know, how we might fix this, this state of affairs, I, I want to spend a, a few minutes just on the kind of the third problem we identify, which is, which is you know, what's often called cancel culture. And, and what I want to ask you about there is, is this. So I think there is an increasing understanding, even on the left, that cancel culture and kind of the general censoriousness of, of opinion is a real problem. But what would you say to someone that says, look, this is a problem, but it's just it's not on the level of the other two problems you identify, right? Social media is completely ruining our discourse and spreading misinformation and in parts of the world is causing violence. You know, the, the Trump and his enablers have ruined American politics. And then cancel culture. I mean, it's not great. It's kind of silly. It's mostly on university campuses. You know, why do you devote a whole chapter and, and seemingly elevate it? To the to the sort of same level of importance, right? I mean, presumably some of this is you your admirable attempt to be even-handed politically, but I, I assume you you think this is as important in some ways as social media and as as you know political lying. Well, minor adjustment. I I thought that as of October of 2020. Now I don't. Now that we've seen the stop the steal campaign, the big lie, the effectiveness the fact that 70% of Republicans now think we're no longer in a democracy, the invasion of the Capitol. Uh, I now think that one of these things is clearly not like the others. And that's the weaponization of Russian style disinformation and the conversion of the Republican Party into a propaganda organ institutionally. I hate to say those words. I'm not a partisan person. I have voted for many Republicans. I'm center right. But I don't think we have ever had a situation in America where we've seen weaponized Russian-style disinformation run against the American people by a major political party. So I'm, I'm more worried about that than by the other two. Uh, that said, so what is canceling? Basically, it's the use of social coercion to intimidate and silence people. Also, it's, dis, it's information warfare, because again, the goal is to manipulate the information environment. So if, if majorities are afraid to speak out because they'll be called, say, a homophobe, uh, then minorities can elevate their own status and their own control of the debate. And they'll seem like maybe they're the majority. And that itself will influence public opinion. Like if you go online and look up vaccinations, you'll get a wildly exaggerated view of how mainstream anti-vax theory is because they've been so good at planning it in so many places. You'll think, well, you know, lots of people think this. Actually, very few do. But they're like a puffer fish. They make themselves seem much bigger. So why is that important? Right now, polls find that 60% of Americans generally and two-thirds of American students say that they are not willing to share their true political opinions for fear of being called offensive. A third of Americans say that they worry about losing their jobs or career opportunities if they give their true political opinions. And something you just said a minute ago, Alan, is absolutely right. This is not confined to the conservatives being worried. It's all political categories, about a third of them are worried about losing a job if they speak their mind. So we're seeing a level of chilling here that's penetrating in the US. One study found about four times the level of the height of the McCarthy era. That's not good for our discourse. It's not good for our souls. It makes it very hard for us to tell, well, really, what do people think? And finally, sorry about the long answer. We see these tactics of, of social coercion, especially used in academia, where all kinds of bad things can happen to you if you question whatever is the orthodoxy that's imposed by usually a pretty small group of activists. And academia is the, the long pole in the tent of the reality-based community. This is the heart of science, of knowledge, of learning, and of passing those values on to younger people. And if it gets corrupted by the idea that, no, you can only have one point of view on affirmative action, 
that undermines both the process of finding knowledge and it undermines the credibility of that process. And both those things, I think, are unfortunately starting to happen. So let's now talk about how we fight against this. And and before we get into the specific tactics, I want to ask you about what I think is a difficult tension not in your argument per se, but but in the, the the rules of the constitution of knowledge. So one thing you emphasize repeatedly throughout your book is that if, if one of the kind of cardinal axioms of the constitution of knowledge is that coercion is not a permissible tactic, um, that we cannot yeah. force our, our, our opponents to agree with us, we, we just have to convince them. But the enemies of the constitution of knowledge presumably don't feel this limitation. They think coercion is, is just fine. So are we, you know, those of us who support the constitution of knowledge, are we always fighting with one hand behind our, our back, as it were? And, and let, me, let me give you a more concrete example from political history. So there's this concept in political theory or political science, sometimes called defensive or militant democracy. And, and this is this idea that a democracy should sometimes be able to restrict democratic freedoms of certain groups in order to preserve democracy. So the most famous example of a system that has this feature is modern Germany. Right, which, which takes the lessons of Weimar, it takes the lessons of, of Hitler and Nazism, to be that liberal democracies sometimes require defenses that are neither liberal or democratic. So in Germany, for example, um, the German government is permitted under its constitution to prohibit political parties that it views as fundamentally antithetical to the liberal democratic order. Right? Something that in the United States would be a flagrant and obvious violation of the First Amendment. And so my question is, you know, does the American version of the Constitution of Knowledge, which leans so heavily on this anti-coercion principle, is it strong enough to fight against infiltration, whether on the left or the right or, or whatever it is, of those forces that fundamentally don't believe in it? You you keep asking the big questions in the most concise kind of way, Alan. So I think in a way that's the big question right now. Right now, if you're in the midst of the culture wars or you're looking at the fact that 70% of Republicans think that Donald Trump won the election, you feel like we're in a terrible situation or if you're looking at how messed up social media is. And it looks like these people and institutions that are waging information warfare are 10 feet tall. And it looks like, you know, they've got all these weapons. These are very uh, sophisticated, effective, well-proven weapons. They have been used in the past to successfully undermine democracies. Some of them are really hard to fight, even if you know exactly what they're up to. Trump never disguised what he was doing. He was right in the open with it, but they're still very hard to combat. And these are serious disadvantages. Here's the thing. Um, We have on the Constitution of Knowledge side, we have some big advantages of our own. It's true that they don't involve coercion, but it turns out coercion is not not effective anyway. If you try to coerce people into believing the right thing, first, it won't work. And second, you wind up uh, losing touch with reality yourself because people become afraid to check for error. So what do we have? One thing is that we have an incredibly deep institutional basis. We've got 400 years of these institutions that have in their DNA the constitution of knowledge, and that includes American universities. Now, they have to defend those principles. Uh, There needs to be a rallying of liberals, small l liberals, pluralists, people who think universities are places where almost any idea should be explorable, where no one should be investigated simply for offending a student or making them feel, quote unquote, unsafe. But those values are there. And my hope is that they can still be mobilized. You're, You're at a university. You can tell me whether you think that's realistic. But I think we're starting to see fight from the liberal side. I, I think especially progressives, but non-authoritarian progressives, liberal progressives, people who believe in pluralism are starting to organize and fight back. They're starting to realize that these weapons of canceling social coercion, investigations, that this is not about progressive ideas. This is about domination and division. So we're seeing the emergence of tons of new groups, and there's going to be more that are fighting for academic freedom, free speech on campus, academic freedom alliance, just to name one example. So our side hasn't really yet begun to fight. And if we if we counter mobilize, then I think, yeah, I think ultimately we do very well. Because remember, the cancelers are actually a small group. The serious woke left 
you know, woke, quote unquote. It's about 8% of the American public. And on campuses, it's bigger, but it's really never a majority. So you've got to organize the disorganized majority and then you get somewhere. So that's, that's the first thing that could go right. The second thing that could go right is we have another huge ally on our side, and that's reality itself. An age-old problem with information warfare, disinformation, is that the propagandists fall for it themselves. And it's very hard to keep this stuff at arm's length because you have to fool people. In order to be effective at that, you often have to fool yourself. You have to make sure people don't really know what's true or false, even within your own ranks. And trolls and disinformation artists, propagandists, they are almost completely parasitical. They can tear down institutions. They can demolish trust. They can have a completely nihilistic attitude toward truth, but they cannot put the vaccine in my shoulder that is protecting me from coronavirus right now. Only the constitution of knowledge can make the new knowledge that improves society and keep us as a society in touch with reality. And that is a huge long-term advantage. But having said all that, something you just said is true. This does The constitution of knowledge does not prevail automatically. It prevails because people realize there is a constitution of knowledge. There are these norms and these institutions that we value, that society depends on, that truth depends on, and we rally and we organize and we mobilize and we defend them. That has to happen. I think that is actually a a wonderfully optimistic and quite inspiring note to end on. So I, I think we'll leave it there. John, thank you so much for for joining. Uh, It really is a wonderful book and it is clarifying. It really is quite inspiring and it it could not come at a better time. So thank you for writing it and thank you for joining me to talk about it. It's a privilege to be on Lawfare. Thank you. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.